0: This is the What Now podcast.
1: We often focus on the victim and we think this person is in an unfortunate situation. They're getting the short end of the stick because of what's happened. And then it's easy to become very critical of the perpetrator and to say, well, that person deserves no compassion, deserves no understanding because they did this terrible thing. Well, if we're respecting each other as children of God, and if everyone has the right to be loved, then we have to extend that the opposite direction as well. We have to leave room for them for improvement and that doesn't mean to necessarily excuse things and each person has to make their individual decision I'm not for a moment suggesting that a person needs to remain in a violent situation because that's extending grace to that person. Maybe the grace in that situation means you leave, you get yourself safe, but you don't bear a grudge for the rest of your life. There's always going to be room for grace, how that manifests in each different situation is going to be different. But when we get in this situation where we think that someone deserves no grace because of their behavior, then we've missed an important part of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: This is the What Now podcast where we discuss cultural topics related to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a respectful and honest way in an effort to uplift, inspire, and create positive change. This is Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Dr. David Morgan, LDS psychologist and counselor, where we address several areas of unrighteous dominion, specifically physical, emotional, and ecclesiastical. Dr. Morgan shares his insights on the root of unrighteous dominion and how to manage it. He also shares tips for both men and women on how to avoid unrighteous dominion in their homes, work, and ward settings. Today, I am here with Dr. David Morgan. We are going to be talking about unrighteous dominion. So David, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Mary Alice. I'm so glad to be back and talk about this topic. It's super important and relevant today.
0: David did an incredible podcast with us about boundaries. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back in our podcast and listen to it. Dr. David Morgan, he did an incredible job on that. He's an LDS psychologist and counselors. First of all, just defining what unrighteous dominion means. Can we talk about that?
1: Of course. When we talk about unrighteous dominion, we have to look at both sides of the coin. And unrighteous dominion is basically exercising inappropriate control over someone else, maybe through manipulation or coercion or something like that. But especially when you talk about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we exist in a society where there are positions of responsibility and positions of authority. Even in the family, the parents are the authority. Parents can exercise unrighteous dominion. I think the flip side of that would be to exercise what we could call righteous responsibility. It's an accountability exercised in a righteous way, as opposed to a domination exercised in an unrighteous way.
0: I like that contrast between unrighteous dominion versus righteous responsibility.
1: I think one of the things that we don't really understand, especially when positions of leadership is that leadership truly is simply a stewardship. I'm the Elders Quorum president right now on my ward. And that doesn't mean that I dominate over the elders quorum. That doesn't mean that I boss them around. What it truly means is that if the Lord wants an accounting of the Mountain View Ward elders quorum right now, he's going to come to me. And whatever's going on is my responsibility. So I need to do my best to behave righteously and receive revelation. And I can make invitations and I can provide direction for the quorum, but it doesn't mean that I'm the boss. And there's just a real misunderstanding of priesthood. And how that works although we've got some great information of that most recently and some excellent books written on women in the priesthood and how priesthood authority and priesthood power goes across the genders the only thing that women don't have is priesthood office but they have priesthood authority and they have priesthood power and quite frankly priesthood office is the least of those three because you can have office without having authority or power and so i love how we're kind of seeing that differently And that it's not this male dominated thing, nor is it something that is just endowed to you without righteous behavior on your part.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction to make. One challenge is that men who hold the priesthood power can sometimes forget the responsibility they have as a recipient of that priesthood power to treat people with an increase of respect and civility. It's not used as a power position, it should be used as a responsible tool to increase their respect. And their leadership,
1: absolutely. We follow the Savior's example, who was the ultimate authority. And even in cases where there was opportunity for him to condemn, he rarely did. It, in fact, there's one example in the entire New Testament where he condemns a specific individual by name, and it was Herod, and he calls him a fox, which was not a <laughs> endearing term. And Herod was the one responsible for the Savior's cousin's execution, John the Baptist. All of his other condemnations, which he did have, were in the generic, and they were to the scribes and Pharisees, but never anyone specific, but he intervened specifically on multiple occasions to bless people. The woman taken in adultery, which is one of the most compassionate stories in the New Testament, and he had every right to condemn her, but he didn't. And I think as leaders, both as men in positions of authority and as women in positions of authority, we need to make sure that we are treating people with compassion and respect.
0: Yeah, and you make a really good distinction there because it is unrighteous dominion when men and women use an unrighteous way to dominate someone else, unrighteous to use fear, and control, and threats to impose our views or standards on somebody else, period.
1: Absolutely. A Relief Society president has priesthood authority to preside over that Relief Society. She doesn't hold priesthood office, but she has authority given to her through the bishop to preside over that Relief Society. And in as much as she is righteous, she can have priesthood power as well in order to receive revelation and direct the affairs of the group that, we're, that she's over. If she becomes overbearing or burdensome or critical or demanding or any of those sorts of things, then she's exercising unrighteous dominion as well. And I'm not trying to draw attention to that so much as I'm trying to say that unrighteous dominion is really no respecter of persons. Sometimes we think, oh, this is just when bishops and stake presidents get out of control. It's not just that. We have some unfortunate glaring examples of those situations, but it's any time that anyone is in a position of authority, they need to exercise that righteous responsibility over those stewardship form.
0: Absolutely. And it was interesting in our recent conference, Elder Holland, he addressed this head on. I mean, he had a very powerful talk about unrighteous dominion, and he specifically addressed several areas of unrighteous dominion in his recent conference talk, specifically physical, emotional, and ecclesiastical. So I want to break those down and talk about those today.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. To this point, we've been talking mostly about the ecclesiastical, but as a psychologist, I probably see much less of that than I see of the physical and emotional unrighteous dominion that that in some families is just happening unchecked. And I think that if you talked to people worldwide, you'd probably find people here and there who probably felt they were on the receiving end of righteous dominion from their bishop or other church leader. But I bet you find a lot of people who said that they felt that they've been emotionally abused or physically abused by a spouse.
0: Yeah. I mean, if someone isn't physically hurt, is it still considered domestic violence? Like throwing things, some people they will punch a the wall, they'll throw something.
1: Well, domestic violence is, in some ways, it's a legal term, and it can be defined by different jurisdictions in terms of what it actually entails. But if you're talking about just violence in the home, of course, it doesn't just have to be physical. In fact, most of the time, I can't imagine a situation where there would be physical violence without accompanying emotional violence. How would that happen? Someone punches you with a smile on their face, just doesn't happen, right? There's always that subtext of, I'm doing this violence to you and I'm doing it to you for these reasons because I don't like you or you're unworthy or you've done something wrong or something like that. So there is always emotional violence associated with physical violence. And quite frankly, in my experience, the emotional is the most damaging. I've worked with people who have been the victims of domestic violence, both physical and emotional. And years later, they're coming. Well, the broken arm or the busted eye socket or whatever it is, has long since healed, but they still have the emotional scars. And which leads me to believe that that emotional abuse is far more significant than the physical abuse.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. So what are some examples of emotional abuse?
1: Well, clearly things like insulting, this active emotional abuse, insulting, what they call gaslighting, which is making fun of people in a very sarcastic way, yelling, screaming, Those things are good examples of that active emotional abuse. And then there's what I call passive emotional abuse, which is withholding affection, the silent treatment. I've known some married couples who will get into it and they won't talk to each other for weeks. I mean, they'll literally not talk to each other for weeks, which to me is so foreign just because I've been fortunate that I've enjoyed a lovely relationship with my wife for these almost 30 years. And I can't imagine going a day without talking to her. But to actively refuse to talk to someone, I think, is emotionally abusive. Sarcasm is something we have to be extremely careful about. We think we're being clever. We have these backhanded compliments where we'll say, oh, yeah, I love my wife a lot. And it'd be great if she'd get up early on Saturday mornings to help me out with stuff. And what kind of compliment is that? Making a nice dessert and then throwing a dollop of mud in the top of it before you serve it to someone doesn't make any sense. If you're going to compliment someone, compliment them. If you're going to criticize them, think twice before you say something and then if you need to say it, then do it with love, but I just don't think of biting, hostile sarcasm is just thinly veiled emotional abuse and there's far too much of it in society.
0: Absolutely. And you see it all the time. I mean, people are sarcastic and more self-deprecating, but when you're doing that to demean somebody else or embarrass somebody else in front of another person and you're being sarcastic at their expense, it's so damaging. It's so humiliating. And the silent treatment is brutal. I don't have that in my relationship. If anything, my husband loves to talk it out and have to talk and talk and talk.
1: It kind of makes you hope for the silent treatment every once in
0: a while. <laughs> Like, okay, okay. <laughs> but the silent treatment I have witnessed, and that is damaging. To not recognize someone's voice, not recognize someone's existence is damaging.
1: It's terrible. And the thing that is particularly bad about it is Satan is so clever with his temptations and his deceptions. Because So if you say, at least I'm not yelling at her, at least I'm not screaming at her, so I must be doing something better because I'm just not acknowledging her. And it's not better. It's just a different version of bad. It's just a different shade of black or gray or whatever it is. It's still ugly. And Satan tries to get us to feel like if we're not doing something that's active and aggressive, then somehow it's not as damaging. But it's the subtext and all of that is really damaging. If you give someone the cold shoulder, of course, yeah, you're not saying something to them, you're not talking to them, but they hear something every day. And what they hear is this person doesn't love me, this person doesn't value me. And if the recipient of that has any sort of existing self esteem or self confidence issues, just underscores those so much and reinforces that negative thinking. I get people come to me all the time and they say, I'm depressed and I can't figure out why until I talk with them for five minutes about their relationship. And I say, I can tell you exactly why you're depressed because these things are happening and you're getting this constant feed of negativity from this person, either through sarcasm or silence or aggressive negative talk. I mean, you hear those things 10 times a day there's no way you're going to be able to pull yourself out of that depression st- until you start counteracting that with alternative thoughts.
0: Right. And what are some strategies for people who do struggle and they don't know how to express themselves when they have these situations and their way of dealing with it is the silent treatment or yelling or punching a wall or those are all inappropriate. So what would be some appropriate ways to deal with things that they struggle with in their relationships and their church callings and confrontations that they have, what are good ways to handle that?
1: I would say that anyone listening to this that resonates with what we're talking about, if you are a yeller, a screamer, if there are holes in your walls, if you use the silent treatment as a method of managing marital conflict or relationship conflict, seriously, go talk to someone about this, find a counselor and visit with someone about this because this is not right and it is damaging to relationships. I mean, individual solutions are going to vary from person to person. Usually, these sorts of things come from a deep-seated feeling of inadequacy. And so they react to that with power and with control because they don't feel lovable themselves. Talking to someone about that and getting a better understanding of what's going on in your mind that is motivating this behavior is very, very good. The other thing is to really increase your spiritual connection with God through scripture study, through study of the words of the living church leaders. Part of the problem is that we almost always act in accordance with what we believe. The problem is that sometimes we don't believe things that are true, or our beliefs are inconsistent with the truth. And there's this gap between what we think is correct and what is actually correct. As we narrow that gap, our behavior typically improves. The husband who yells at his wife, at some level, he feels it's okay to do that. He has to feel it's okay to do that. Otherwise he wouldn't do it, but he feels it's okay to do that. So he needs to figure out, how do I change that belief so that it becomes unacceptable to ever do that? And the greatest source of truth we have are scripture, in both living and ancient prophets. And so as we read those things, then we start to and I'm not saying that you're going to find the answer right there in Scripture, and it's going to say, "Thou shalt not yell at thy wife." But you're going to learn about things, and as you get the spirit in greater measure in your life, then you start to get greater clarity when you have an urge to do something, and the spirit can say, that's a bad idea, and then we can choose otherwise. So I know that's a generic answer, but the truth is that the problems in these situations are just extremely varied, and people need individual solutions to their individual problem.
0: Yeah, and sometimes that can come from their own personal history. They had a parent that yelled and screamed at them, they're conditioned to think that's normal behavior. I think that's good advice to seek counseling and get help for that. But also, when you're really in tune with the Spirit, when you're really reading the Scriptures, when you're really in it for the right reasons, your disposition will kind of change on that sort of thing. You won't have a desire to be cruel or mean, or however you handle these difficult situations, because you'll have that increase of spirit and the spirit will stop you. You'll feel that it's wrong, right?
1: Totally. Yeah. You get that mitigating, purifying influence of the Holy Ghost. Having worked with both perpetrators and victims, I can guarantee you that they're all equally broken. Perpetrators are just as broken as victims, just broken in different ways. And that's what motivates that behavior. And so it's not that just that they are these evil hostile people that, that want to watch the world burn, they're just not like that. They have just as like you said, they come from histories where they learned it was correct, or usually they're just in nine types of pain that they're trying to manage. And the only way they really know how to manage it is what they've observed, which is through violence and anger. I know it can be difficult to have compassion for the perpetrator and for the victim at the same time, but that's what the savior does. He understands us all and he realizes that we're all just equally broken and we need to be fixed.
0: Right, and everyone has their own history and their own issues they've dealt with, so showing some mercy there is important to remember. That's a good point. There is a really powerful quote from Elder Helen's recent talk and conference. It says, how tragic and utterly disgusting a phenomenon is wife abuse, he said. Any man in this church who abuses his wife, who demeans her, who insults her, who exercises unrighteous dominion over her, is unworthy to hold the priesthood. He is unworthy to hold a temple recommend. Equally despicable, he said, was any form of child abuse or any other kind of abuse. That's a powerful statement coming from the pulpit.
1: It's amazing. I love it because he's absolutely right. And we need to think very carefully about our behavior. One of the things that people need to understand is that priesthood authority, understanding the difference between the three things. So you've got priesthood office, which is deacon, teacher, priest bishop, elder, high priest, apostle, 70, those things. But you can have that office, but unless you have authority from someone to do something about it, you can't really act in that. Like I said, I'm the elders quorum president, but the only reason I can do things is because I've been given an authorization from our stake president to run the affairs of the elders quorum. Primary president is the same way. She gets priesthood authority to run the primary from the bishop. And then the power comes from righteous living. And that priesthood power is separate from authority and is separate from office. You can have office and authority without having any power in your responsibility because you're not keeping the commandments. And so that's one of the things that we need to understand is that just because you are the authority in that relationship, that does not give you any automatic connection to heaven. And that connection can be immediately terminated upon principles of negative behaviors. So I totally agree with Elder Holland. and anyone who is cruel to their spouse, and it goes both ways. It's much more common from the man to the woman, but it certainly happens from the woman to the man. Any of those abusive acts are completely out of compliance with what the Lord expects of us.
0: Yeah, you make a really good point there about the power. Yeah, you can have the office and you can be given the authority, but you can't really have the power if you're exercising unrighteous dominion. That is a really good distinction.
1: You can't. President Packer, before his passing, He says, as a church, we've done a very good job of distributing the authority of the priesthood. He says, we have not done nearly as good job as increasing the power of the priesthood. And President Nelson has talked about that as well. He understands it extremely well that in order for things to really get moving, to really get off the ground, we need priesthood power. And that only happens when we are living our covenants.
0: A hundred percent. There's another really good quote from his talk in the conference talk that I want to read too. that goes hand in hand with us. It says, in no case are we to be guilty of any form of abuse or unrighteous dominion or immoral coercion, not physical or emotional or ecclesiastical or any other kind. That's from Elder Holland over the pulpit.
1: Amen. I don't know what else to say to that.
0: Yeah, that's basically what we're talking about right here. And even with Ecclesiastical, I think it just proves your point again there about the power. You know, I'm a Relief Society president right now. You're an Elder Quorum president right now. I feel way more in touch with the spirit in this calling because I need to. And when I do that, I feel more connected. I feel the power. I feel inspired to go visit certain people at certain times and certain moments. And it manifests itself once I get there. It is so amazing. The Righteous power we're given when we're doing it in the right way. And I'm not trying to boast about that. I'm just saying it's humbling.
1: Exactly. And the only reason that you are entitled to that power is because you are doing the things to, for the Lord to bless you with it. And if you were to stop doing those things, if you decided that you'd done enough scripture reading for 2021 and church attendance and just stop doing all those things, you would still have priesthood authority. You'd still be the Relief Society president until you're released but you wouldn't have the accompanying power that you currently experience because you've disconnected from that power source.
0: That's really true. It's interesting because years ago, I was a young woman's president, and you know I thought about the young woman, but not much. My daughter, so when so I got in that position, I started thinking about them all the time. I started worrying about them. I started praying about them. It's interesting how you get that increase of concern and love For the people that you're given the opportunity to minister over. And once I was released, I didn't really feel that anymore. It was interesting. Definite distinction. I feel that too. We had this woman in our ward give an incredible testimony last week about Christ being the shepherd and us being in the flock and gave an example of a shepherd who was a different shepherd, not over that flock, trying to do this call sign for the sheep and the sheep would not move. And then once their actual shepherd came and the words at the minute they started out of his mouth, they immediately moved as a flock to follow him. It was interesting. We do have this responsibility as leaders of our groups, if we're doing it right, you don't have to force and browbeat people into doing things. If you treat them with love and respect, they'll want to follow, they'll feel the spirit of what you're trying to do.
1: Well, and I love how the Savior in the New Testament, he talks so much about fishing and how the apostles were going to be fishers of men. And it was a, an analogy that was very familiar to them because many of them had a background in fishing. But you notice the savior doesn't call himself the good fisherman. He calls himself the good shepherd. And I think that's exactly because that, because the fish don't have a relationship with the fishermen. The fish are just out there doing their thing and they get caught up in a net, and before you know it, they're they're being broiled on dry ground. The sheep develop a relationship with the shepherd. I've heard it said, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it's a great story, regardless that in places in the world where they keep sheep, that sometimes they'll put multiple flocks together in a single pen at night just to conserve resources. So you've got hundreds of sheep in this single pen, but maybe five different flocks in there. In the morning, when it's time to divide the flocks again so they can go out and graze, all they need to do is for the shepherd to come and to call the names of his flock. And then only those sheep that belong to him come out. And everyone else just stays because they're like, that's not my shepherd. I'm not going anywhere. I love that idea of hearkening to the Savior's voice and him being the good shepherd. So anyway, it's a great analogy. Better than fish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense, right? Because they are animals and they do have these certain inclinations of safety. They want to be safe. They want to be protected. And they know their shepherd is fighting off the lions, fighting off whatever animals are out there that could attack the sheep, right? Right.
1: Yeah. Better than him being the good cat herder, because if you've ever had a cat, you know, they don't listen. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I like that. So what should be the guiding principle for our actions? Respecting each other as children of God. We're all children of God. And if you really let that sink in and think that God cares about all of us the same, that's pretty powerful concept.
1: It's an extremely powerful concept because it has application on both sides of the coin here. When you talk about people being affected by unrighteous dominion, physical, emotional, or ecclesiastical, like Elder Holland says, we often focus on the victim, and we think this person is in an unfortunate situation. They're getting the short end of the stick because of what's happened. And and then it's easy to become very critical of the perpetrator and to say, well, that person deserves no compassion, deserves no understanding because they did this terrible thing. Well, if we're respecting each other as children of God, and if everyone has the right to be loved then we have to extend that the opposite direction as well. And we have to have grace and compassion for these flawed people who are making terrible choices, but we have to leave room for them to for improvement. And that doesn't mean to necessarily excuse things. And each person has to make their individual decision there. I'm not for a moment suggesting that a person needs to remain in a violent situation because that's extending grace to that person. Maybe the grace in that situation means you leave, you get yourself safe, but you don't bear a grudge for the rest of your life and you extend some forgiveness. Um, there's always going to be room for grace. How that manifests in each different situation is going to be different. But when we get in this situation where we think that someone deserves no grace because of their behavior, then we've missed an important part of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: That's a good point. So I want to transition into some things Joseph Smith said in DNC 121. It talks a lot about unrighteous dominion. And Joseph Smith saw the problem this would become in the church, and he has some really powerful warnings for the priesthood leaders. So it says, Joseph Smith has some strong warnings for those with priesthood authority in D&C 12139, and I'm going to quote him here. It says, We have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men, as soon as they get a little authority, As they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. And how do we see that happening today still in the
1: church? It's one of my favorite scriptures. And the background of that scripture is Joseph had been incarcerated in the Liberty Jail for months. And he writes sections 121, 122, and 123, which are amazing, amazing sections that give Joseph great insight into the nature of his suffering and how the Lord still cares for him and the burdens that we all have to bear. This is after being months of having guards point guns in his faces and stuff like that. So I can see where he's coming from, from this thing, this little authority, as they suppose. But even to break down that scripture, it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. And Mary Alice, you and I talked about this before the podcast, that I think that men is pretty typical in that. I think women tend to exercise less unrighteous dominion than men. It's certainly not absent in women, but I think it happens less. So it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority, so not a lot of authority, a little authority as they suppose. So even if I just think that I have a little authority, I don't even have to really have it. I just think that I've got a little bit of authority and then I immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. I don't know if it's a power and control issue, if it's a lack of confidence issue. I can honestly say that in the individuals that I've known where I would say that they are prone to exercising unrighteous dominion, I would also describe them as lacking in confidence, lacking in self-esteem, and just generally uncertain of themselves. Some of my favorite people, the friends I've been friends with for years that are on the opposite end of that spectrum, they're just completely genuine and understanding. They're not passive, but they are appropriately assertive, very kind. They are just as secure as they can be in themselves. They really know who they are and what they're about. And I think that makes a big difference. We see that on righteous dominion. Unfortunately, we see it at the ecclesiastical level, we talked about before, we definitely see it in homes. And it can happen from parents to children as well, becoming overbearing with your children. I see parents sometimes that say, this is great, I've got my child locked down so they can't get into any trouble. And I think I'll unlock the gate when they're 25 so they can go out and live their lives. I remember feeling like that as a parent many years ago. I don't feel like that anymore. It's important for our kids to learn and to grow and to break some eggs along the way. And that's why we have the Savior's atonement, because it takes care of all that broken stuff. So we just need to be very, very careful and aware of our own behaviors, what we're doing, what we're saying, and think about, is this me trying to control someone else? If you're trying to control someone else in any way, it's just not right.
0: Yeah, I like your focus on self-awareness too. Just taking a moment and being aware of what you're saying aware of what you're doing and how you're acting. I love in DNC 12141, Joseph Smith continues, and he counsels priesthood holders on how they need to use their priesthood. And I'm gonna quote him here. It says, we have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. So it's basically the same thing kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. So I read 41 and 42. They're both incredible.
1: And the only thing that I would suggest in that you talked about priesthood holders, I would expand that to anyone who's acting under the authority of the priesthood, which includes women and men. Because that's when he says no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. That's what he's talking about. That priesthood power, that priesthood influence And although the church is certainly, the way that the priesthood government is structured, it's certainly heavier on the male side than it is on the female side. It's definitely blended. But I love the things he talks about, that power, that connection happens through persuasion, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, love unfeigned. I think that's great. And how he says, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained. So it's not just a question of whether you should or shouldn't. You can't. I mean, if you are exercising unrighteous dominion, you do not have priesthood power. And that actually goes back to verse 37. It says that, uh, well, in verse 36, that says that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven, and the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. That they may be conferred upon us, it is true. So, yes, we can get priesthood authority. We can be called as bishops and really cited presidents and primary presidents and elders quorum presidents. But when we undertake to cover our sins or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves, the spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or authority of that man. So it's like this lovely computer I have sitting in front of me that is working perfectly when we're doing this podcast. But if someone comes and unplugs that thing from the wall, it is over. Mm -hmm. This thing stops. And it doesn't matter how much I talk into this microphone, everything stops. And it is only because that electricity is running this thing that makes it work. And so in that case, we truly are the computer. And priesthood power is the electricity coming through the wall socket. And the moment you, any of us begin to cover our sins, gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise unrighteous dominion or compulsion over other people, it's just unplugging from the wall, and it becomes instantly impotent.
0: That is a great comparison. The electricity is the power, God's power. This has been an incredible podcast. I'll end with that because I think that's the crux of it all, right? How we can have the mantle, we can have the calling, but we're not going to have the power unless we're exercising righteous responsibility, you know, back to the beginning of the podcast where we talked about righteous responsibility and how we lead as ecclesiastical leaders and how we lead in our home, how we lead as parents and friends, all of it it all ties in together.
1: Totally. Yeah. There's nothing that we talked about today that doesn't apply to anyone in any relationship they have in any position of authority they have. It's all applicable.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, my pleasure. These things are fantastic. I appreciate your testimony and depth of understanding. And it's just been a pleasure for me.
0: Well, I think it's going to help a lot of people. A lot of people in the church culture struggle with this. They just do. The unrighteous dominion has been a challenge for a lot of people and a lot of people leave the church because of it. So that's why I felt really inspired to do a podcast about this today. So thank you so much for your insights and your time.
1: You're welcome. I think just one more thing, you talk about people leaving the church because of this. And just a word of caution, if anyone's listening, has been through this, and has experienced unrighteous dominion at the hand of a church leader, don't throw out what you know to be true because of the behavior of one person. Bishops come and go, stick presidents come and go, and sometimes they just are not sufficiently prepared to deal with certain situations. And that's very unfortunate. But the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is true. Joseph Smith was a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true, and everything else are just details from that. And so let's be careful that we hold to what we know is true, and then just try to ride out the rest the best we can, extending grace where where we can, and being appropriately assertive for our part as well. But these things are true, and let's not let the imperfectness of men and women get in the way of that.
0: That's a great point to end with. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. Please help us create positive change by sharing this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. I invite you to follow us on Instagram at podcast what now. That's at podcastwhatnow for daily inspirational messages and updates on all of our current podcasts. We also invite you to leave a positive rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For the review to process, you just need to download the episode and make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Scroll down the episodes until you see ratings and reviews and share your positive feedback. Positive ratings and written reviews really help our podcast to grow. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast
1: production.